Are you sitting comfortably? Then we'll begin. Everybody and welcome to another episode of There's Still Time, the AFTN Soccer Show. I'm your host, Jap Stam. Oh no, got confused there. I, I just looked in the mirror, saw a bald white man, thought it was Jap Stam. Turns out I'm not. I am your host instead, Michael McCall, and I am joined for another couple of hours of fantastic fun with Zachary Adam Meisenheimer. How's it going, Michael? It's going good. You had a, a good week, Zach? Yeah, no, it's, yeah, it's been a good week. Any good football stuff watched, aside from Bayern Munich? Yeah, I mean, all the, I watched most of the Bundesliga matches, except for, there's like, I think there was only two, I have, I'm sorry, I haven't watched this morning's games, I have them on the PBR, the Sunday morning games, but um, I watched all the Saturday games that weren't on Sports Network only, so it was four or five, and I watched the Friday game too, so huh. well, lots, I've, of, lots of fun. I've been watching the Faroe Island Premier, where the games are coming thick and fast. There's another one coming up on Thursday. I've been really enjoying that. Decided. Oh, the grounds are absolutely beautiful. But I I reached out to the the club in the Faroes that I've adopted to to follow Vikingar Gota. Uh, just to try and get hold of a, a strip from theirs. So they came back to me with a price, and it was going to work out at 183 Canadian. Oh, so, like mm, I, yeah, I don't think I'll be getting that. It's also, it looks very much like a kind of European ice hockey strip with the amount of advertising that's on it as well. Can you get it sent to five? I thought about that, but then it's quite bad over there. Who knows what would come through in the package? Yeah, but I, I do have a, a deposit down on a Slutsk strip as well, so we're still not 100% sure whether the guys taking the deposits are scammers or not, but we'll find out soon enough. Yeah, you don't want, you don't want, your, you don't want your package to arrive with Joe Corona in it. Oh, definitely not. And talking to Joe Corona, we usually start the show travelling around the world with Joe, but we're actually going to start this week's show staying here at home, because it's been a lot of stuff coming out to do with MLS this week. MLS's plans to return to play, they've continued apace, and one of the potentially big stumbling blocks in terms of travel seems to have been solved now. CNN reported on Saturday night that the acting secretary for the US Department of Homeland Security had said that foreign athletes from various sports leagues will now be exempt from any travel restrictions. 
allowing folk to get into the US from wherever to, to play sports without any concerns. Obviously, they still might have to quarantine when they get back to Canada, but it does open the door for the, the three MLS teams to to go and, and play this tournament in Orlando if it comes to pass. Great news. Mm. Well, let's talk a little bit about this tournament because the, the guys at The Athletic, they've done stellar work this past week in bringing us details of what this MLS Orlando plan is and some leaked negotiations with a players' union and some stuff like that as well. They've got hold of a lot of leaked documents which they say has come from not within the league and not within the players' union. I feel they have to kind of say that, but it's interesting then when the documents did come from. There's some very, very interesting stuff in that, and I highly recommend subscribing to The Athletic just now. They've got a 90-day free trial, so you can cancel it after that. So, I mean, I've subscribed to kind of read all all these articles because the guys have certainly been, been putting the work in. And... I mean, the first thing to look at, on Thursday, I think it was, they released an article which was detailing exactly what the MLS Orlando tournament was going to look like. Now, the the teams are still thought that the hope is that they're going to arrive in June, with the tournament starting on July 3rd. And they've gone for this super snappy tagline, Zach, of MLS is back. I mean, that's great marketing. I don't know how much money was put into thinking about that. Yeah, seriously. Yeah. But the plan itself is very interesting. So all 26 teams, if they were involved, would be split into four groups. There would be two groups for the East and two for the West, with Nashville making a temporary jump to the Eastern Conference, which then gets interesting as we get further into it. Yeah, and in fact, actually, let, let me just bring this point up oh, now, because also the group games, those points are going to count towards the regular season. So in Nashville's case, you're going to have their 12 opponents playing Western Conference teams, and then they'll be playing Eastern Conference teams. So, I mean, it could work in their favour, but more likely it's going to work against them, because any points they get are then not taken off a Western Conference team, and it's realistically maybe a, a tougher proposition for them. So, I mean, it makes absolutely no sense. But then there's a lot of this that I'm going to go through that makes very little sense. But, yeah, I mean, that that is crazy. Yeah. Now, the four groups, there would be four seeds in the group. And you would think maybe the, the four seeds would be the, the teams that made it to the, the conference finals last year. So the, the two in the East and West conferences. But kind of is the answer, but kind of not. So the four seeds would be Seattle Sounders, MLS champs. Total sense. LAFC, Supporter Shield champs. Makes sense. Atlanta United, US Open Cup champs. Kind of makes sense, but it's like the US Open Cup's nothing to do with MLS. It's a a nationwide competition with teams from other leagues in it. And then the fourth seed would be Orlando, because they're hosts. (laughs) Yeah, but 
then it was clarified the next day that Toronto would also kind of be a seed, but they wouldn't be the number one seed. And then an Atlanta would draw lots to see who goes in Orlando's group, and then they would be kind of seeded second in that group. I don't know what to make of that at all, really. Um, the rest of the groups would be drawn randomly as well. So, I mean, the Whitecaps could get drawn in Seattle's group or they could get drawn in LAFC's group. I know I'd prefer Seattle because LAFC have to feel the stronger team, but already this doesn't seem like a level playing field because so much of it is going to be down to the luck of the draw. Well, also as well, like Orlando as hosts, they're not really hosts because they're not playing at Orlando's ground. They just happen to be in the city that, that they play in. So, I mean, that's that's weird in itself. Yeah. There'll be three groups of six teams and one group of eight teams. So, again, this could be weird for Nashville if they end up in the East in a group of eight. Teams, though, would only play five games. So, in that group of eight, the teams aren't even all playing each other. I know, it's just... The, and the, the group games would count towards the MLS regular season, with the top two in each group then advancing to a knockout round. So the kind of rumoured losers knockout round doesn't seem to be happening. It would just be the eight teams that would advance into the knockout round. But then, you don't really know what's going to happen with those eight teams. What happens to the winner of the tournament? do they automatically make the playoffs? Should all eight teams that qualify make the playoffs? Because that would maybe be fair reward for them. Because another thing that came out from the next day in another leaked document was that MLS are looking to have nine teams from each conference in the playoffs this year. So if the Whitecaps can't make nine out of 13, then I don't know what hope they've got really, but... Obviously, last year they wouldn't have, but I mean, th this is all weird as well. So if you've got nine teams in, I genuinely feel the four teams that's made it through the knockout rounds in the West should deservedly take those playoff spots up because you're going to have a curtailed season. So I think that how would does, kind of be how fair. Do, how does a nine-team playoff work? Yeah, well, there's that as well. I don't know. I haven't even given that too much thought, but yeah. Oh... But th things get even better because it's obviously very hot in Orlando in the summer. It, unbearably hot during the day. So they've penciled in three kickoff times for matches. These are all Eastern time. So the first matches on a day would kick off at 9am. So 6am Eastern. Now you have to think that's going to be the Eastern teams that we'll be playing in that. The other two matches would be kicking off at 8pm and 10.30pm Eastern Time. Now, the whole talk of all this... There's one main pitch, and I remember there being two other pitches, uh, kind of training pitches. And there's one pitch that's got the stadium around it, and then I think there was just two pitches that didn't. But actually, here's another thing as well. The NBA are also planning on going to this complex 
because there's three basketball arenas at the complex. Now, it's a massive complex. It's something like a quarter of a million acres or, or, or something. But you've, you're still then mixing groups. You're mixing personnel from different parts of the country. And it's like, is there enough gyms and stuff like that to, to have all these groups mixing? What does that do for the quarantine bubble? All that kind of stuff. It's just very, very interesting and potentially scary. But the, the whole thing about this was they were talking about, oh, TV money and revenue for the clubs and everything like that. But if you're getting games kicking off at 9am Eastern Time and 10.30 Eastern Time, how many folk are actually going to be watching those games? Yeah. I mean, there's no way I'd be getting up at 6am to watch, say, Philly against Columbus. <laughs> I don't think I would get up at at 9pm, actually, to watch Philly v Columbus, but that, that's a whole other thing. But that's another reason that they want the nine teams in the playoffs, because it's going to give them more gate revenue. Yeah, that's not going to be happening. But also TV revenue, because there'll be more matches shown on TV and things spread around. I still don't think there's going to be fans at any games this year. But if they're, if they're playing a shortened season, surely the TV companies are going to pay them more money, just because just because it's a quote-unquote playoff game. I wouldn't think so, but they're going to have their set criteria for how many games they have to pay for, and right. playoff games probably play more, so... And then there's also the negotiating the TV deals as well. So the the general feeling, like when I spoke to Jonathan Tannenwald, which seems months ago now, uh, he said he feels that the TV companies will keep sweet on this because they want to sign a, a lucrative deal because it's going to be tied in with like American national team games and stuff like that. So like Olympics and, and World Cup potentially. Right. Now, teams in the playoffs, I guess they would do three teams get a bye and then three three teams do like three versus three. There'd be three yeah. three pairs and those winners would play. No, that no that's, that won't work out either. Yeah, how are they going to do this? Yeah, let's, let's, let's put our pencils... Uh, listeners, let us know how you would work a nine-game playoff because at this time of night I can't get my head around it. I've got to be honest. <laughs> now, Weird. It's important to stress that nothing has been ratified yet. The unions still have to agree and they still have a lot of concerns over things like testing. The union have apparently submitted a hundred questions to the league over the proposals, the biggest ones surrounding quarantine measures for players, hotel staff, etc. Because if the players are quarantined, are the hotel staff also going to be quarantined or do they go home to their family and friends? And then what would they be bringing into the bubble? And then is it fair to quarantine hotel staff for two months? Yeah. It's, I mean, it's all this kind of stuff. Some big name players like Vela, Chicharito and Nani, who is in Orlando, so you think he'd be all for it. These apparently are against the plans just now. And I forget which one it is. I think it might be Chicharito. Um, his wife is, is pregnant. And you've got the likes of Andy Rose, who's, we talked about this before, his wife is due in July. He also has diabetes, and that's like a high-risk thing. So it's apparently people that are high-risk would be able to opt out of this, which would be great for Andy Rose, but then not great for the Whitecaps, because you're already down a player when you're playing a number of games in a short period of time. Now, about the testing. 
I was on a conference call with P- Peter Vermees last week, and he he interestingly revealed that oh, yeah. Sport and KC had got hold of their own tests, and they were doing great work doing it. And then he was kind of getting prodded on, well, would you share that with the with the rest of the league? And it's like, well, only if we have to, I guess. But we're, we are all in this together. So you have to hope that they are going to procure enough tests. But the testing itself, the, the teams are going to be allowed to bring 45 to 47 personnel with them. So that's players, training staff, one PR person, one content provider, stuff like that. So 45 to 47, but still seems a lot of people, especially when you're looking at 26 teams doing that. So already it's quite a big bubble. Players and officials, including referees, would have to get tested 72 hours before they left for Orlando. And they have to do three tests in that time. One is an antibody test and two is just a kind of cotton bud thing up up your nose test so you have to test positive then they would be getting tested every three months but whilst they're in Orlando when they first arrive everyone has to quarantine in the hotel for seven days with daily checks so then you're going back to square one of we were stuck in our houses doing zoom training now we're at the facilities but now we're going to have to go and quarantine again for a week this just does not seem worth it I mean, it sounds like they're pretty desperate to get back. I mean, yeah. some, of, some of these things are, are either, they, either they don't get it or they're just desperate to get back. Because, yeah, these measures you're talking about are seem kind of crazy, uh, at least in some part. Um, I mean, as a player, I, I understand it's your job to play football, but it just feels an unnecessary risk yep. to, to go and do this and rush yep. back for something that, ultimately could be meaningless anyway. I mean, as a parent right now, the school is in BC opening on June 1st. Yeah. Where, you know, we would have a middle school child go to school for three days in three weeks. And uh, elementary school students go to school for two or three days a week for three weeks. It's kind of like we said as parents, like, yeah, we have a high risk the case in our house. And my wife kind of like, yeah, they, it, I understand what they're doing. They want to bring get back to things as quickly as possible. They probably want to test things for September so they can make sure that they're all good to go. But for us as a family, it's like, no, I don't think we really want to do that. But, yeah. So, yeah, I can't imagine. I mean, the players are probably torn between two things. One, if they don't do this, do they get no money or, or less money? Well, there's that aspect as well because the CBA still not oh, right. ratified. Yeah, they're holding it, lording it over them. Yeah. Because it's not, apparently hasn't been ratified. Well, I mean, that's nothing that, like, the USL, they their union, their players' union was recognised by the league a year and a half ago, and they still haven't even agreed on a CBA in 18 months. So they're in an even more bad position. And, like, like talking of the USL, the rumours were swirling this week that they might just cancel the entire season, but that's been strongly denied. But the Athletic, again, got some leaked documents coming out of that, the, the league and the players' union have gone back and forth with proposal and counter-proposal and the league are wanting players to take 20% pay cuts across the board and players in that league aren't paid a lot of money. I know of some players that's gone there that were offered 30000 for the year and you're meant to live on that. And 
I don't know. It's it's all in a mess. And I understand cancelling the leagues. It's going to be bad for everyone. And yeah, people could ultimately lose their jobs at this. And some clubs could go to the wall. In, for example, USL or NWSL, which we'll cover later. But it just... To put all these people at risk, to be in a bubble that then other people that's not connected with it, like the hotel staff and caterers and all that kind of stuff. It just doesn't seem worth it to me. If you've not, if you're not deciding the, the championship at this tournament, I don't understand even having the tournament. I, yeah, I, I agree with your principle totally. Like to me, if they're doing some kind of tournament, it should be like the be all and the end all for 2020. Yeah. And then give everyone a, a, a time off until next year. And hopefully you know, by next year, a vaccine or whatever is ready and you can do things more normal and make the money you want to make. But they either, either they don't want to lose money or they're in a really bad place. And again, or they just don't want to, or they just don't want to, you know, lose momentum with sponsorships or whatever. Because, like, you know, they have the money, right? Like, surely, surely the money they made off expansion for this year would allow them to survive a year like this. Oh, you'd or, think so, yeah. Or just the personal wealth of the combined owners should allow them to, to be able to miss a season, whether it was for a lockout, a strike, or whatever. They should be able to go through, you know, the the, the, the owners should be able to go a year without being able things to be operated as normal, you would think. Well, you, yeah. You'd think and you'd hope, but... Yeah, and then the players, in one sense, you'd say, okay, the players, maybe they're not going to be able to make the money, but Weren't they just getting ready for a potential strike? Hmm. Yeah, and the, the, the players' union so talked about for the players union yeah board, like a, or the players' rep, or just players in general. Like, hey, if, if this means you don't get paid this year, but you're safe and you're with your family and whatever, you know, is that something you'd be willing to give up? Uh, you know, I, I know it's all. I know I'm asking it flippantly, and it's a very hard and difficult question. But I mean, it, it, I agree with you. It doesn't make sense. The only reason you're doing this is to uh, try and not lose money and try and not lose your like momentum or you know what are your foothold yeah. in you know sponsorships or broadcasts I, or whatever. I do wonder if it wasn't like an anniversary season, twenty five years, would that have made any difference? And it probably wouldn't, to be honest. But that has to play into it because you you don't want your special season completely derailed. Well, it's definitely a special season. Yep, I think folk will be remembering this for a long time. And after all of that, the leaks haven't stopped with The Athletic because they got hold of a, another internal memo that was sent by Don Garber and the league officials to every club in MLS. And boy, are they not happy with this information getting out. The memo was sent on Friday and it was threatening employees with disciplinary action, including termination of employment and fines of up to $1 million dollars if they are caught leaking information. The League have apparently hired a firm of investigators to try and find out where the leak has stemmed from, citing that the leaks could severely imperil the future of our league. And the memo also apparently states four areas that league and club personnel are now prohibited from publicly discussing. One, the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on MLS or its clubs. Two, any potential approaches to returning to play. Three, any discussions with the MLSPA, including information about potential pay cuts. 
which the latest on that is that they're looking for players to take 10% pay cuts across the board. And four, any information discussed in MLS Board of Governor calls, MLS committee calls or meetings or in any other forum in which official league business is covered. Now, that pretty much means that no player, no coach, no manager, no sporting director, no owner is going to be allowed to chat to media about anything COVID-19 related by the, by the signs of this for the foreseeable future. It's a little bit late. The horse has bolted on a number of occasions with that. But, I mean, this is what people want to know about. And to shut up doors like that, I just, I, frankly, I, I just find it ridiculous. And the league and the league, we've talked about them not being transparent in the past. And this is just another prime example of that, sadly. But that, that's it for our MLS chat for this part. We're going to be talking some white caps in the next part as I sit down for a chat with one of the young stars of the Whitecaps team and a, a guy we think could do really well this year for the team if they do get back to playing, and that's Ryan Raposo. And we'll be back with that after this. Hi, I'm Mark Dos Santos, and you're listening to the AFTN Soccer Show. Welcome back to the AFTN Soccer Show on CITR Radio, 101.9 FM. That was the latest song and the penultimate song from our Artist of the Month for May, Wales's Finest, The Super Furry Animals, a song called Slow Life from their sixth studio album from 2003, Phantom Power. Absolutely fantastic song. That was a song that the band used as their set opener for many years to, towards the latter end of their, their touring career. And it was a very kind of memorable song and a very memorable start to their sets because lead singer Gruff Reese came out wearing a kind of jumpsuit and then a motorcycle helmet with a visor down, holding the microphone up to kind of the side of the helmet and kind of singing the song through that. Yeah, you have to see it. If you go Google Slow Life Live on YouTube and you'll see some examples of what I'm talking about. But great song by a great band. One more to go this month from the Super Furry Animals. Hope you've enjoyed what we've brought you from them so far. In this part of tonight's show, though, we're going to turn our attentions to the Vancouver Whitecaps and we're going to bring you our main player interview for this episode. Got a chance this week to chat with... One of the rising stars of the Whitecaps roster, 21-year-old Canadian winger Ryan Raposo, drafted fourth overall this year by the Whitecaps in the what now seems so long ago MLS Super Draft back in January. So much has changed in that time. And it's been a very interesting first season in the pro ranks for Ryan, coming to the Whitecaps from Syracuse University. Immediately made his mark in the pre-season, Scoring goals in his first two pre-season games down in California. 
made his MLS debut in the second game of the season, away to LA Galaxy, came on midway through the second half and grabbed an assist on Toussaint Ricketts' winning goal. Definitely an upward trajectory for the young winger and then of course everything gets shut down, he just can't capitalise and build on that performance and he's just itching to get back on the field. So we spoke to Ryan back in January, you can check out one of the old AFT and soccer shows, kind of looking back at his career, his time spent away in Germany as a 15 year old trying to make it in the pros and then going to Syracuse University. So we didn't recover any of that just now, but we we wanted to talk about his start to the season, how the lockdown has affected him and his family, and a lot more besides. So grab a chocolate digestive, your favourite hot beverage of choice, and sit back and enjoy our chat with Vancouver Whitecaps winger, Ryan Raposo. First thing to ask you really, Ryan, is I must feel good to be back out on the pitch. I know things aren't totally back to normal, but just to kind of get out of the house and get to, to do stuff with the ball and, and see your teammates again. Yeah, no, for sure. It's been it's been amazing to be back, especially after like two months off. Everyone was kind of dying to be back on the field, even though, you know, we're, we're each doing our own thing. It's obviously still great to put your cleats back on and pick I mean, how has it been personally for for you during this quarantine? I know when we, we spoke just on your draft day, we were chatting about what it was like for you in Germany. And I know you went there on your own as a 15-year-old and then you've, you've been at college on your own. So in a number of ways, you're, you're kind of used to, to being on your own. But in other ways, this is so different as well. How have you found the whole thing? Yeah, I mean, like you said, I've I lived alone in Germany and I was away at school, so that definitely prepped me. What I mean, it's definitely been tough, but at the same time, it's been tough for everyone. Um, you know, I've been keeping myself busy, you know, trying uh, starting back up school, trying to complete my degree with sport management and those sorts of things. So, I mean, again, it's been tough, but, you know, I, we're coming to the closing stages of it, so that's what I'm really glad about. Yeah, I think everyone's just wanting to, to see some, some football on the pitch at the moment. As, I, as I'm talking to you just now, I, I've, I'm watching Faroe Islands Premier League, so I don't, I don't know if you had a chance to see any of the leagues that's on, like Belarus or, I mean, Bundesliga's yeah, back. I've been watching the Bundesliga, so I've definitely been keeping up with football. So, I mean, it, it's nice to see it's nice to see it back. Now, I saw the piece the CTV did on you and and your mum, and I know she's obviously a nurse and working frontline at the moment. Have you had a... I mean, how how easy has it been to, to kind of keep in touch with her? Because obviously she's going to be working long hours and shifts and there's the time difference and, and everything like that. Yeah, I mean, we definitely call as, as much as we can. Um, some days longer than others, but, you know, we'll hop on the phone Usually at night time for them, mid-evening for me, you know, just after a shift, you'll get home around 7, you know, whatever, cook, cook, you know, family, FaceTime me at the dinner table with, you know, my dad and my brother there, I'll talk to them for a bit, and usually on the weekend, she'll call me in the morning, so uh, it's been fairly easy to keep in contact with her. Nice. And I mean, we, we last spoke on, on your draft day, like I said, and I mean, it's hard to think that's four months ago now. I mean, so much has changed in that time. Does it seem like just an age ago now, looking back at that day? Yeah. 
Yeah, it does feel, I feel like a lot of things have happened and changed. You know, obviously, preseason is very, very long. You know, obviously going to California and then back here and then the Portland tournament. You know, and everyone was just excited for preseason to kind of end you know, and then obviously two weeks in, all this stuff happened. So just having to deal with it mentally, especially getting back now, it's, it's kind of like those same drills, the same fitness drills. Yeah. And then once we do get back to full training, um, you know, it's going to be another preseason, right? Whether yeah. it's Florida or wherever it's, um, like four weeks of it and then back into games. So definitely been tough, especially my first year. But, I mean, it is what it is. Yeah, it's certainly been a, a baptism of fire for you. But if we look at the the original preseason, I mean, you started that so strongly. We we talked about like how the transition to MLS was going to be, and you knew it was going to be a, a a big like step up in class. But those first two games in preseason, I mean, you hit the ground running. I mean, it must have been a dream come true to score in in your first two matches. No, for sure, I was really happy. I remember sitting on the bench in that first game against Columbus and kind of seeing where I could make a difference and seeing where I could exploit the fullback and then as soon as I came on you know I was doing exactly that I was confident making forward runs and um yeah once I once they put the ball in and it was in the back of the net it was it was a really good feeling I wanted to celebrate like but obviously it's preseason so I couldn't do that <laughs> um and then obviously you know how football goes you play well you score goals assists get more minutes so that next game against Dallas I got the start and then I scored the first goal kind of like a lucky goal but at the end of the day you score like you score a goal is a goal so definitely happy there and I was even involved kind of like an assist in that Dallas game as well and then I got sick for the last preseason game against the Galaxy so that was kind of tough I kind of fell out of the squad because again that's just how football works um, so I had to work my way back up. Didn't make the roster for SKC in week one, which was really, really tough for me. And yeah. the standards that like I kind of hold myself to. But, you know, I, I trained. I remember that first training back, you know, I made sure I was the hardest working guy on the field to show the coaches that I deserved to be on uh, at least the 18. You know, and then obviously I got my chance that week in L.A. and made the most of it. Yeah, I mean, let's talk about that game just now. I know it was a, a late call-up because Jordi got injured. And when when did you find out you were going to be in the 18? Just, just as I was walking out for training, the coaches pulled me into the locker room and said, hey, you know, Jordi can't travel. Did you want to come? Obviously, kind of in a joking manner. <laughs> and they said, uh, okay, after training, you know, fly home, grab your suitcase, and then meet us at the airport. Wow. So, I mean, in some ways it's good because it didn't give you too much time to really think about stuff, I guess. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And the lead up to the game in the hotel, the bus ride over, I mean, the fans were, like, heckling us, like, sort of, and the stadium was, like, bumping. Like, it was a great environment. And for some reason, I wasn't nervous at all. I would say I was nervous for my first game in Portland in the stadium. You know, and there was some some fans there but this game against LA with full pack stadium obviously Chicharito's first game Pavone's playing you know all their stars and for some reason I wasn't nervous at all 
I mean, that it showed when you came on as well. When you went down, obviously, because you hadn't originally been in the 18, you probably, I would imagine, have thought you're maybe not going to get on, on the pitch. But Exactly. But when the, when the call came, you were warming up, obviously, and the call came. What, what was going through your mind when you were told you were going on? Um, so originally, obviously, I was expecting just to warm up for 90 minutes and then fly home, uh, to be honest. But um, I remember just warming up and then the coach is calling someone over. I'm thinking they're calling Freddie Montero, obviously, because, you know, he's a, he's a big time player. And so I'm just continuing my warm up. And then, you know, the message gets passed down that they're calling for me. And then as I'm jogging over to the bench to grab my jersey, I'm like, wow, OK, like, this is it. Like, this is like. <laughs> This is the moment, you know, you've dreamt of. This is the moment you daydream of in school. Like, you know, this is it, your pro debut. So um, I wasn't nervous, but I did tell myself, like, I had to make a difference in order to keep making the roster and keep getting minutes. So um, I knew I had to, you know, be the hardest working guy defensively and make make a difference attacking-wise, whether that was a goal or assist. Well, I mean, you certainly made your mark. You, you got the assist, and I, I mean, getting that so early in in your career, and like getting those minutes so early in in your pro career, do you feel it's kind of lifted a little bit of weight off your shoulders, or do you feel it's maybe put a bit more expectation on you? Uh, I wouldn't say more. It's it's what I expected from myself right from the start. Yeah. So, and I I know it's still going to be an uphill battle, obviously, with such a deep roster of quality players. You know, there's going to be still games where I might be left out of the 18, some games where I might, you know, play some more minutes. So, um, I mean, it's my first year. As much as I want to say, you know, it'll be a learning curve and then that, you know, again, I hold myself to a high standard. So, I mean, obviously I want to be on the field as much as I can, as well as I'm doing, as well as I'm playing well. But, you know, like, I understand, again, it's football. You're not playing well, you're not playing playing well, you're playing. So, obviously, there'll be ups and downs. And you, you haven't looked out of place uh, in either at training or, or the, the minutes that you have played. I mean, going back to what we are talking about, like your transition from, from youth into college and then into this, how how hard have you found the step up? Because it, it will obviously be a lot of adjustment, but you seem to have taken it in your stride. Oh, yeah, for sure. I would definitely say that this is the biggest transition. Like, club to college was tough, yeah, but I adapted very, very quickly, and it was kind of what I expected. This, you know, obviously the quality of players, kind of college is like, you know, you have a couple good players, and then the guys, the rest of them are like fillers, where obviously, you know, you're at a pro club now, everyone makes money, everyone everyone is really good. So, you know, you're held to an even higher standard, but it's what, it's what I expected, for sure, so... So I'm glad with my progression so far. And everything's obviously up in the air at the moment. No one really knows what's happening. So I, I won't ask you a bit about that per se, but when they, whenever things do return in whatever way they do return, there's obviously going to be a lot more games in a short period of time. So squads are going to be important to every team. So that should really allow you to get a lot more minutes on the field as well. For sure, yeah, that's what my agent was kind of reassuring me, that, you know, there's going to be a lot of games in a, in a quick manner, so, you know, that's good for me, that I'll see the field more, and so, no, I'm, I'm definitely happy about that, I'm just mentally preparing for exactly that, to make sure that when I'm called upon, you know, I'm mentally and physically fit. 
And when we last spoke, you had mentioned that you'd never actually been to Vancouver before. Now, I mean, obviously you were then away in California, you're down in Oregon, and then now there's a lockdown. Have you had much of a chance to, to kind of explore this city? And if you have, what, what have you made of it so far? Yeah, I actually went to Stanley Park with my girlfriend yesterday. Oh, cool. You know, and I was planning to go to Whistler when yeah. everything kind of clears up. And I live right by the water. It overlooks all the town. So it's definitely one of the best cities I've been in and lived in. Obviously, I've played in Germany, been to like some nice cities such as like Marseille, you know, Lisbon, the islands in Portugal. No, I'd definitely say Vancouver is definitely up there for sure for like standard of living and things to do. And yeah, no, for sure. I really love it here. And I know you're good buddies with Jordan Haynes. Have you had a chance to, to connect with Jordan? He's been over on the island with Pacific, but have you had a chance to meet up yet? No, uh, no, not yet. But we'll definitely get in contact when everything, um, you know, kind of clears up. But yeah, I mean, we played together. Funny story, the first time I kind of met him, we had to sleep in a bed together because we were <laughs> playing for Vaughn and we were way at a showcase. And obviously it's just a club team. So there was four guys per room, two guys per bed. And he was just my bedmate. And that was like <laughs> the first time I met him. And he was like, yeah, you know, I played for the Whitecaps, blah, blah, blah. So kind of like a funny story. Well, that's cool. I mean, talking about Vaughn, yeah, that was, I guess, where a lot of folk had first seen you play because Vaughn Azuri were taking on Halifax in last year's Canadian Championship. And I mean, it's always that, just over a year ago now, since, since those matches, you scored in the first leg. What, what's your memory of, of those games? Yeah, I mean, Halifax was definitely a good good team but I felt like Vaughn we were, we were prepared I, I think we were unlucky not to advance I mean, yeah. they dominated us for the first 45 minutes of the first leg and then after that it was all us the second half obviously we scored two goals and then we went to Halifax and I thought we dominated all game I kind of got like an assist I crossed in it was an own goal and after that we were just on top of them so they, the the coach even said in like a press conference afterwards that you know they were they were lucky and that we were the better team. So, and just the last thing to to ask you about before all this happened, you'd been named on the provisional forty man roster for the Canadian Olympic team. We don't know if you were going to make the team or not because they never got that far and uh, things have been postponed just now. We don't know if the Olympics are even actually going on next year or not. But what what did that mean to you and what would it mean to you to, to represent your country? I think that's every footballer's dream, right? To uh, represent your country at, on the world stage, whether that's World Cup, CONCACAF, Olympics, whatever the case is. So it was definitely accomplishment and it's been something I've been working towards ever since I kind of got released from the national team at U15 or I never got called back mm. um, you know I was obviously upset I thought I remember I was 15 we were playing Costa Rica um, I scored a goal and I was confident in myself and they kind of just said you know you won't be back until um, you know you, you make that step with the pro academy or pro club and I just continued with my development with um, my club and certain coaches that I knew. That would make me a better player. And so now that hopefully I'll be back into camp and, yeah, I'm really happy. Again, it would be a great honor to represent my country. 
Well, thanks for chatting to us today, Ryan. Good luck with everything. Hopefully we'll see you back in, in some match acts in, in, the, in the coming weeks and just good luck for the rest of the season. For sure. All right, thank you. I appreciate it. That's great. Take care, Ryan. Good luck with everything. So that was Ryan Raposo there, and I just bring Zach in, in again just to have a little chat about Ryan. We haven't seen a lot of him so far. I mean, we've only got the the preseason games, and we've got the the one game that he played in LA to to go by. But from what we've seen, from what I've heard, from like his highlights, and just just the way he conducts himself, he certainly seems to be a, a really exciting prospect. I feel for the Whitecaps. Yeah, lots of. Lots of positives and lots of lots of potential. I, I'd like it. I don't want to get like you don't want to get too high yeah. on, a, on a player. I mean, I, I guess when nothing's going on, it's hard not to get excited about something. <laughs> yeah. um, but no, I would agree with you. I, I remember his uh, time in preseason this year. I think he scored was the first goal of preseason or whatever. Yeah, he uh, scored the very first goal, and he scored in the second game as well. So he scored in his first two preseason games. Yeah. yeah. So he came on in LA. Uh, he got an assist, a second assist, really, on the on the Toussaint goal. But yeah. him coming off the bench, it really turned the game. And as he, he talked about a little bit there, it, I mean, it came out of the blue. It only happened because Jordi Reyna fell sick the, the Friday before. And he thought he was just going down to make up the numbers. But then all of a sudden you get called upon. He gets put on the pitch before Freddie Montero. And then he goes and does that. I mean, it's just... Frustrating, I guess, then that the very next week he can't then capitalize and build on that because everything then just gets locked down. Yeah, I think those kind of, the contributions he made are uh, very, very promising. And so I think, and I, the other thing that's interesting is how they've also used him in the, the age of Corona in terms of putting him out for some of their social media stuff or some of their, their public things or up yeah. for you guys to talk to or whatever. It's been really interesting to see how they've used him for that. And, and, and so that either means he's either available or they really think highly of him or they really, they really want to see him excel. And so they want to get his name and his face and his story out there. So well, I mean, it's that a, goes well for him. It's a great story. And a, as he's a very grown up and a very mature 21-year-old coming out of the draft just after his, his sophomore year. But, I mean, the time he spent as a 15-year-old alone in Germany and then his time away at college, it's kind of prepared him for for being kind of locked away and alone just now. And he seems to have dealt with it really well. And he, he definitely seems like a guy that he's got his head screwed on. He knows. He's, he's a confident guy. I mean, it comes across from the chat there. But he knows he still has a lot of work to do. And this is just the start of his journey. But I am genuinely excited to see what he can bring to this team. And with the, the number of games coming thick and fast, as, as I talked to him about there, he's going to get his opportunities this season, maybe more than he would have if we we've, if we hadn't been hit by the coronavirus. Yeah, yeah. I, how this pandemic will affect everything going forward, is who, who, who knows, right? Uh, could this hinder a player like this? Could this help his chances or, you know, his opportunities or whatever? Time will tell. But, yeah, he's a likable dude and uh, you hope for the best for him, uh, especially in his time in, uh, you know, at a Canadian club like Vancouver. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, as you say, I mean, it is a it is a weird time. The game is changing. No one really knows what's going to happen. No one knows what's going to happen with 
transfers going forward for, for the rest of this year. I mean, it, it would be a strange time to sign players. It also feels like a bit of a, a strange time to maybe appoint a new manager, but sometimes needs must. And that has been the case for FC Cincinnati. They appointed the very experienced Yap Stam this week. And we're going to hear a little bit from the new Cincinnati manager in the next part and just have a little bit of chat about what he might bring to MLS and a few more things as well. And we'll be back with all of that after this. Hi, I'm Alan Koch, and you are listening to the AFTN Soccer Show. In a white room with black curtains near the station Welcome back to the AFT and Soccer Show on CITR Radio 101.9 FM. A little bit of 60s psychedelia for you to kick off this part. And the first of tonight's song of our three of a kind section. For anyone that hasn't heard the show before, what we've been doing the last couple of shows, is the songs that we're going to play at the start of parts 3, 4 and 5 are all going to be linked in some way. Could be by the same band, it could be cover versions by the same artist, it could be a, a theme of the song or where they're from. A whole load of factors can get taken into account. Your job over the next couple of parts is to try and work out what the link can be. If you've managed to work out the link by the end of the second song, can you try and work out what the third song might be to kick off part five? As I mentioned, that was the first of tonight's Three of a Kind songs. We've gone back to 1968 for this one, English band Cream, with a song called The White Room, from their Wheels of Fire in the Studio album. Is that a song you've heard before? What could the link be? Well, we'll give you the second song to kick off part four. Now, though, we're going to turn our attention back to MLS, and there was a managerial appointment in the league this week. FC Cincinnati appointed their fourth head coach in only just over a season in the league. Dutch legendary centre-back Yap Stam has taken over the reins in Cincinnati. Still stuck over in Europe just now, so no one's really sure when they're going to be able to get him to join up with the team, but they're hoping that that might be quite soon. If the US government have lifted restrictions for athletes travelling into the country, then you have to think that they might be able to get Stam into Ohio pretty soon once they get all his paperwork and visas and everything like that sorted out. It's certainly an interesting appointment. The the 47-year-old has got a wealth of experience. So many people will remember him playing at international level for Holland, playing the Premier League for Man United. Also played for PSV Eindhoven, Lazio, Milan, Ajax. Won a lot of medals in a very distinguished career. But he's coming to MLS for the, the first time as either a player or a manager. 
obviously doesn't know a, a lot of the ins and outs of the league firsthand, but he's going to have people around him that will be able to help with that. His managerial experience, it's, it's been varied. Most of it has been in Holland so far. A lot of people will remember him from his time at Reading, where he just missed out in the playoffs and guiding Reading back to the Premier League. Most recently, he was appointed as head coach of Feyenoord. Appointed on March 6th, 2019, resigning on the 28th of October, 2019. Feeling it was better for the club, the players and himself if he stood aside. But there was a a lot, apparently, of false promises or false expectations made of Stam in his time there. And that was one of several things that Stam addressed at his introductory Zoom press conference on Friday. I was on that call, got to ask Japa a couple of questions and... The whole call lasted for over an hour. So what I've done is I've put together what I feel were the most interesting aspects from the call. And it's something I've talked about on the show over the past few weeks that I'm kind of enjoying bringing you stuff from not just our own little bubble here in BC or in Canada with the Whitecaps and the CPL and stuff. It's It's been good to kind of delve into to chat with people around the league. So hopefully you're enjoying that as much as I am taking part in them and bringing them to you. But there was a lot of interesting stuff came out of this. So I'll play that now and then we'll we'll chat a little bit with Zach about what Stam's appointment might mean to Cincinnati. I've been to your city in our city A lot has happened since uh, yesterday. Uh, how, yeah. how is it to go uh, to go viral? Everything was 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 going well. You know, yesterday uh, every, everybody knows, and, and you're aiming a little bit up of about this picture that came out. You know, so uh, you know, yesterday was a very uh, busy day. You know, it was a hard day, a lot of talking, a lot of meetings. Eventually, so we we used the uh, the double ganger to do the picture for me. So eventually, uh, everybody knew and understand what we were what we were going to do. Yeah. Uh, how, how did you look at at the other clubs, the MLS clubs, who also made uh, made some jokes about it? Yeah, no, I've seen it. Yeah, because somebody like like posted it to me as well, and I can I can I can appreciate that as well, you know. Um, and 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 I think some at a certain time we need to have a little bit of a laugh as well, you know. If we play yeah. against each other, if we come out on top by winning these particular games, you know, then we can have a laugh. So that's uh, that's what we're trying to do. Does this feel kind? Kind of a, a revenge after your uh, period at Feyenoord. No, it's, it's not a revenge. It's a, it's a total different project that I'm uh, I'm stepping into. Feyenoord, we, uh, as you know as well as a Dutch journalist, we made certain agreements. Eventually, uh, things changed, and that's why I made the decision to say, okay, maybe it's better for somebody else to step in because the things that we agreed on were totally changed. Um, by myself working five months for Feyenoord, by getting the players eventually fit so they can play three games a week. You know, the next coach, uh, you know, did his advantage with that. You know, and that's how it works in football. So, um, you know, so it's not a revenge. Um, every manager, every head coach is looking for, like I said before, for like a certain club that has, has a nice project, has a good idea, with good people. Uh, I think FC Cincinnati has, uh, has got that, you know, and, and I'm trying to be um, helpful to them. And, and hopefully together we can, make, uh, we can make history and do very well the next couple, next couple of years. Major League Soccer has a lot of intricacies that is very different from elsewhere in the world. How familiar are you with the league? And I guess a question for Jeff on that, how important is it for you not to just look for someone that already had MLS experience? 
Yes, I'm, 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 I'm familiar with the league. And of course, in Holland, um, you know, everybody shows a lot of football uh, from all over the world and, and also MLS games. So, um, so I know, uh, I know that the MLS is like really in, 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 in the lift. You know, they're making very big steps. Um, a lot of interesting people, very talented people, uh, big clubs. Uh, a lot of people want to work in the MLS, of course, as well, because everybody knows that if in, in, in the US, if people are starting to work on something, trying to build something, um, they're, they're really going to go for it. And that's what you see in, in the MLS now, nowadays. Also, I'm looking forward to, uh, to start working. And on the second part, I would just say we uh, had a, a global search and we, in, uh, we made certain that we had uh, candidates with a history in Major League Soccer. Uh, we wanted to be able to evaluate the candidates uh, uh, on different levels. And certainly uh, there, there are very experienced uh, coaches uh, who we had a great opportunity to visit with and consider. Uh, at, at the end of the day, Yap is uh, the, the right head coach for us, the best head coach. Uh, Gerard uh, is the general manager, and he oversees uh, roster development and everything on the technical side, which includes uh, the uh, adherence to the MLS rules and roster development structures. Uh, we have uh, Gerard mentioned Hunter Freeman. Uh, as our director of scouting and recruitment. Hunter has a long history in Major League Soccer uh, as a player uh, and uh, uh, now in our front office having the ability to support Gerard. So um, we were certainly uh, more than uh, uh, confident in, in Yop's ability to come in here and be uh, immediately successful. How do you think your experience of uh, management in Europe, uh, specifically in England and, and Holland, obviously, will translate to the MLS. Do you think uh, the game is very similar or are there certain differences you're going to have to account for? Well, at, at, certain, at certain parts, it's, it's similar. I think it's uh, in the MLS, the competition, the league is very competitive. If you're looking at the teams, uh, how, how the teams are set up, um, you know, also by the rules by the, by the MLS, I think that that's very good. Um, by working in, in Holland, um, uh, thinking about football in a different way than, than working in the, uh, in the, in the UK, uh, a little bit in all that we're very tactically uh, thinking about the game and what we need to achieve, how we want to play, uh, going a lot into detail in the UK is a little bit different, you know, because uh, the plays are differently uh, as well in terms of physicality. The pace of the game is totally different. If you're looking at the MLS, if you compare certain games, then you see uh, from both countries a little bit back. And I think um, I experienced both things. I can bring that to the MLS as well, and that can help me out. Yap, congratulations. Um, just looking at the roster that you're going to start your journey with here, mm -hmm. uh, my first question is, does it fit the style that you want to play? And then the second question is, um, you know, are there any players that you're particularly excited to be coaching or do you think that there's areas of opportunity um, that you kind of see initially before you start? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I like the roster very much. And I think if you, if you look at the roster uh, from this season, it's already made some changes compared to, uh, to last season. So I think uh, Gerard and Ante did a great job on, on, uh, on, on that. Um, a very important thing for myself to join FC Cincinnati, of course, is as well. And, and that makes it a little bit easier as well that they're playing the system that I like to play as well in a 1-4-3-3 system. Uh, we're playing dominant. I like to play it in a dominant way, uh, pressing high up. If the opportunity is there, of course, looking at the opposition and, 
and of course, um, you know, uh, being patient at times as well. If you look at the roster this season, then there's a lot of quality in there. The players can can uh, fit in this system. Um, of course, they can also play in a different system, you know, but this system particularly is very good. Um, then if I'm going to be playing different than the last couple of games that have been played, maybe in, in certain details I can make some some adjustments or I can ask certain things from certain players. Yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm excited about uh, about this, this roster and, and start working with them. How do you think the MLS compares strength-wise with European leagues that you've played in and of the various managers, big-name coaches that you've played for, are there any traits that you feel you've inherited from them? Well, <laughs> you don't want to... I think as a head coach, you don't want to copy certain managers. And, and there's, there's always... Um, well, a very positive thing as a player playing at a very high level, you're going to be working with like very uh, big managers and, and well-known managers all over the world that won a lot of trophies as well. Uh, so you try to think about when you go into management yourself, into coaching yourself, you try to think about that, these head coaches that you've been working with and how they approach certain situations, what they do, have done in certain situations, how they've been playing in certain situations. But I think it's important for myself as a head coach that you, that you stay close to yourself and what you want to achieve eventually uh, with, your, uh, with your squad, uh, with the roster to eventually uh, get, the, get the results. So, um, you know, I've, I've, of course, sometimes you're thinking back at certain managers like Sir Alex Ferguson or Angelotti's, uh, you know, or Van Gaal's or whatever, but I think I've got my own idea about, uh, you know, um, managing uh, a certain team, uh, which I'm very confident in and, and which I think can be very successful. Um, comparing the MLS to certain leagues in, uh, in, in, in Europe, I think if you look at the ability of, of players individually in the MLS and, and also at the teams, the certain teams in, uh, in the MLS, I think it's a very strong league. and. Um, I wouldn't say that uh, they can like straight away can compete with like uh, like Spain or maybe the Premier League, but uh, I think they're they're, they're close. And and uh, if you look at the interest of every manager and and also the players, that a lot of players want to play in the MLS. So I think it's going to be growing and growing and getting stronger and stronger every season. So that makes it very interesting. Uh, I'll ask you a question that I've that gets asked often of, of successful players who move into management. Mm -hmm. How does your experience as a player translate to how you will relate to your players now and, and your expectations of yourself, will those be the same expectations that you'll have of your team? Well, my expectations are, are always very high and, and my expectations towards the team are going to be high as well. I think you need to set goals as a, as a head coach, as a, uh, as a manager, but you need to have a look at your plays, of course, in, in, in how far can they go and what can they do, what can they bring on the, on the, on the pitch. And, um, and that's, as a manager, you need to manage that. And that's what you need to talk about with, with your staff and, and how you um, are going to play, uh, with whom you're, you're going to be playing, how to use uh, all the players in, uh, in, in a certain way. Uh, myself, being a former player, a lot of former players went into management. It doesn't mean if you've been a former player that you're going to be a very good manager. Uh, and everybody understands that as well. The only thing is, for myself, uh, going into management, you know, you started in a, in a, in a certain role, um, myself in Holland, into into coaching by working individually with players, by smaller groups, um, eventually working with uh, with the whole team. Uh, then you get, of course, the feedback from a lot of people that it helps them out a lot to feel comfortable in how you're uh, in, in how you're working and what you're trying to do with them. Uh, sometimes you need to be a direct, uh, direct to the players. Sometimes you need to help them out, uh, have a bit 
more of a, of a certain feeling with certain players because every player, every player is of course differently. You need to approach them in a different way as well. You cannot you cannot approach everybody in the same way. That's the same. I think if you if in, in in normal life in in normal businesses as well. I think that's very important as well. I think the experience for myself as a player, um, um, I think that helps the players a lot. And, and you're not always referring back to your career as a player, but um, you know as a former player in certain situations in where the player has been, what he's done, what his choice was at a certain time, uh, how we can make the uh, next time a better choice or maybe uh, handle the situation in a different way. And I think from a, from being a playing player in a certain level, that can help me out a lot, and that can help my players out a lot. And you try to uh, well to show that in to the players uh, by going to uh, meetings, by video meetings, uh, putting the situation back on the pitch, and eventually, you know, they become a better player. Um, but it's all also to the players themselves. You know, the players themselves need to have the mentality as well that they want to become a better player, that they are interested, that they are willing to listen, uh, and of course, using their own. Um, creativity as well as a as a player, and by doing that, I think we can we can get a long way and we can do well. Uh, I wanted to ask you. Obviously, you were known as a very intense and intimidating guy on the field. It's the way you played the game. I wanted to ask: is is that how you are as a coach too? Is that how you tried to coach, or have you had to learn to like harness that or corral that a little differently as a coach? Yeah, well, everybody everybody sees me, of course. Um, when they see me physically, everybody's thinking, "Okay, you must be angry all the time." You know, but that's not the case. I'm, I'm uh, you know, I, I'm, I can have a laugh with everybody, and uh, you know, I'm, uh, I played in a certain way, with a certain aggression, uh, like everybody knows as well. Um, that's my mentality. That's my my way how I approach the game. You try to uh, to win your your games. You you go up in in your games as well. Um, as a manager, you need to learn how to um, manage that as well. Your own feelings, how uh, you approach your your team, what you want to give to your team as a manager as well. Of course, you want to give that give that winning mentality to your team because players, I think, need to do everything in their ability to uh, to win their games and, and to do uh, their best and to work very hard. That's the least what you can expect from your players. Um, in how I played as a player by being a defender and sometimes uh, tackle players uh, and being uh, looked like a tough guy or whatever that's not in in um in how i approach the game in terms of playing um of course you want to have players or the team needs to be decisive in what they're doing but that's in a way defensively but that's also uh, attacking wise you know if you go in, in offensively as well if you go forward you need to be very decisive in your attacking movement and making your runs um in in how i want to play that's by um you know playing in, in an attractive way going forward uh, being dominant, keeping possession, and then hopefully finding the the patience to create openings in the opposition to uh, score goals. And then by being dominant, I mean um, it's it's always nicer to have the ball yourself as a team than to chase it every time. And that's why uh, you know we, you want to play in a certain way. Of course, I need to have a look at my um, at my team, and also we need to look at the opposition and how they are set up and what we can do, of course, against them. Uh, because sometimes it doesn't always go in how you want it to be, and players need to know at that uh, that time what they need to do. Then, so you try to prepare your team uh, the best way you can uh, you can do. This is kind of the million dollar question facing football right now, but the the global pandemic has brought a lot of questions to uh, the global transfer market. Uh, FC Cincinnati will have a prominent case on its own hands in Jurgen Lokadia. 
Gerard, you and I have talked about this a lot, but I'm curious to know, Yap, uh, what you anticipate happening in the next five or six weeks when some of these contracts start to come due, start to come up, and uh, people try to proceed with normal business. What do you think the market is kind of going to look like? Well, the market is going to be probably a little bit different than how it was before in, in terms of uh, uh, money spending from clubs as well and what they can do. And, and we are aware of that and we need, to be, uh, we need to be aware of that. And I think for everybody, and it's for us as well, that you need to be cautious in, in making your decisions. Of course, on the, on the other hand, you want to have, uh, uh, you want to have your qualities within, uh, within the roster and you want to have quality players. Just wondering, what would you consider, with it being a young club going into a new stadium, what would you consider to be success on the pitch for this season? For this season? Well, <laughs> it's always, you need to be careful in answering these questions, of course, because people stick to it when you say certain things. You know, but um, it, it, we spoke about the roster. Uh, we, we've, we've seen the last uh, two games, you know, they were unlucky at certain times in these games as well. Um, there's a lot of ability within the, within the roster if you're looking at the players individually. And for myself now, it's very important to make that ideal combination of players uh, during games as well. So they, they're going to be successful. Everybody understands their role, their part in what they need to do and what I expect from them on the pitch, but also in what they feel comfortable in doing, of course, which is very important as well for the players. So... Um, you know, so there's still a lot of games to be played, and um, and we can we can still make a lot of steps. There's a lot of uh, competition within the league, but um, you know, I'm not going to say we we need to be there, but um, I'm sure we get we can we can make big steps uh, this season. During your playing time, you were known very much as a kind of no-nonsense defender. Cincinnati have a kind of similar guy in Kendall Waston. Mm -hmm. What have you made of watching him from the games that you've seen? And how do you think your playing style would fit into the modern game now that things have changed a little bit? My playing style? Yeah, in terms of tackling. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, when I played, and that's the thing about managers, because um, sometimes as a player, you're not always allowed what you can contribute to a game. For instance, when uh, I played for Sir Alex with Man United, when I had the ball on my feet and I was like, you're getting halfway the pitch and I, I crossed the halfway line. So Alex shouted at me, at me, you know, yeah, don't do that. You know, give that ball to somebody else because we've got other players to do that. You know, so uh, sometimes it looks like and people give you that stamp of no nonsense defender, you know, but I've, uh, in, in how I can play, I can bring a lot more. I could bring a lot more to the game, but sometimes you need to stick to your, uh, to your assignment, to your things that you need to do and what the manager is asking from you. Um, if I look at Kendall and what he can do, you know, he's, he's physical, he's a presence, he can defend very well, he's good in the air as well. Um, in, in how we can play, I, I still think he can contribute a lot more to the game. I think he can, he can uh, on the ball as well, you know, and, and take an initiative. Certain things, uh, you need to give players a certain freedom as well to be creative as well. And not only the players up front need to be creative, but players at the back sometimes can be creative as well. And by doing that, you need to make the opposition uh, make changes and, and uh, they need to make choices. And that makes it uh, more difficult for them to, to defend you or to press you. So uh, well, Kendall is, is uh, and from what, what I've heard as well, he's a great guy, uh, very good mentality um, as a player, good player. But uh, as, as I think, and that's my, my opinion, and um, I'm, I'm not 
very quickly satisfied. Eh? So I've got an, an opinion about a lot of players, you know, but I think there's, there's a lot of room with him as well for improvement, even better than he already is. So that was Yap Stam there. Some good stuff there, some exciting stuff if you're an FC Cincinnati fan, just listening to about how he wants to play the game. Despite being a kind of no-nonsense defender, he wants to play an attractive football, wants to go with a high press, kind of very MDS-style team, I think is what we might see from FC Cincinnati. He feels he's already got the players there that is going to be able to allow him to do that. And... Also interesting as well, describing it still as a project, I mean, we're in year two now, it's still a lot to get done in Cincinnati. The The ground that they had last year was not great. He is their fourth manager in their MLS era. I mean, you think about that. I mean, we, we've joked before the comparisons with, with FC Cincinnati <laughs> and the Whitecaps in their early years, but I mean, even we weren't the disaster that they seem to have been. Yeah, it's inter- It's interesting. Uh, I mean, they had they have had so much fanfare in their short USL tenure yeah. that helped get them into MLS. So the one thing I would say is I don't from afar, and I haven't tracked the numbers extremely closely, but their engagement with their community has not seemed to die down in hu- in a huge way, despite no. the fact that they are they have not been done well these first. This first year, yeah, which, is, which is very promising because I mean they're going to their new stadium and it's like the the ticket sales for that season ticket sales seem fantastic. Exactly. Well, they're oh, their new the new stadium they're building was they was like too small, right? Yeah, they were already sold out, and so yeah, there's lots of upside in terms of that kind of stuff. But you you can only sustain that for so long if you are awful on the pitch and poorly run, right? Mm, and, yeah, uh, they it's hard not to say that the organization has been poorly run when you see things like the comments that we have made fun of over the last, whatever, number of months, when you have the making um, comments about the culture and bringing in a guy to change the culture, and then a few months later they're like, oh, we got to get someone else who can bring in the right culture. Yeah. They, they, choose, they chose some buzzwords or some PR people told them to spin things a certain way, and it, and it seems to have really bitten them. What I would say is that I don't think Yapstam is anyone who is, he's not the kind of person I think who suffers fools lightly. No. So I think that, uh, I think there'll be not a lot of, uh, you know, joking around or like it's going to be serious business, I think, for, for, you know, training and, uh, training and preparing and the approach to the football side of things in Cincinnati. And so hopefully that works for them. Uh, and hopefully, you know, in terms of him saying, I have the players to play, I want to play. Hopefully that's true. Hopefully that's not just something nice to say at the onset of your of your your time as the coach there, because there's a lot of work for for them to do, and there's a some there's some significant hills for them to climb. But I think he's someone who can come in and could and could write their ship maybe uh, quicker than what, you know what's happened with their first whatever three managers or so. Well, another important thing that you, you can't talk about a Yapstam hiring into into MLS without talking about how foreign coaches have fared in the league, right? It's, yeah. It's been a mixed bag at best, I think it's, it's fair to say. So you hope, uh, I don't know, as much as a, I wasn't a super fan of his as an individual because he's, you know, from Holland and uh, and a Man United player and, and whatever, um, you hope for his sake that, that he is able to, you know, be one of the more successful foreign coaches to come to the league. 
saw, I think, I think something to look at, you know, the closest maybe comparison you can get to him in one sense might be his countryman, Frank DeBoer. And yeah. I could see him being somewhat similar to him in terms of his kind of rough exterior, or not rough, but like firm exterior with the media and with the players and whatever, and bringing that kind of, that type of professionalism to Cincinnati, which could work out really well, or, you know, might, might not, but. Well, I mean, they got off to a really professional start with their press release, which had the wrong photograph on it. Yeah. At least he, he can laugh about it, but it was kind of the elephant in the room, and it was one of the Dutch journalists that then brought it up. It was the third question of the the conference call, the first one that I, I've put in the audio that we just heard, but and then another Dutch journalist asked about it later, but he kind of just ignored that part of it and then just answered another question. <laughs> Yeah, well, I've seen lots of memes going around about all Oh, that. there's been some fantastic ones, yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, that... I, it, I mean, it's tough for the person that made that mistake. It was apparently labelled wrongly by Getty Images, so... <laughs> I mean, yeah. All, all white, bald men look the same. Maybe they thought they were hiring Bob Bradley, I don't know. That's but funny. I, I, think, I think it's going to be a good appointment. It, as you say, it... it it is a risk bringing a guy in that has no MLS experience, but he is surrounded by people, as Jeff Bering alluded to there, that they do know MLS and that they've got the experience, so he'll be more just getting the best out of the players. He did well with Reading when he had his spell there. He had a very short stint with Feyenoord that didn't go the way that he, he was expecting. And I, I'm interested to see what he can do. He's going to have really good contacts as well. So you have yeah. to think he's going to draw on that. And he, he learned under one of the best in Sir Alex Ferguson. And for me as a player, I don't know if I can say of all time, but certainly in the modern era, he's been one of the best defenders. I mean, he was a beast with Man United. He he won the UEFA Defender of the Year. He's he's won a lot of plaudits. He made the Premier League team season after season for like team of the season. So, I mean, he's got that. And a, a guy like Kendall Waston, you feel, will learn a lot from that. Totally. Yeah, uh, this, is the, this is potential. I know it's late in his career, but it is the potential to give Kendall a, a boost. Yeah. That's what you kind of hope for, that it's not a, a clashing of, of minds or philosophies or whatever, but of, of a thing that will be just be a, like a, a great encouragement and a great like uplifting for him. And it's also going to be very uplifting for Kakuta Mani. He he spoke to media after the after training, I think, on Friday, and he was so excited as a Man United fan that the player that he watched as a little boy was now his boss. So he seemed really excited by that. And maybe he'll use him more as a as a winger like that. That it was very uh, you know the classic Dutch kind of formations to use wingers in a significant mm. significant way, which could bode well for Kakuta, especially if Kakuta is willing to put in the work that Yap will demand from him. Yeah, I, it's like he's like an MDS character. If you do not put the work in, and uh, like he's not going to suffer fools gladly. So these guys, some of them might get a bit of a, a kick up the ass that they really need. But it will be interesting to see what he can do with this group and what additions he makes when they can make additions. Because he's used to being at clubs where they can just go and splash lots of money. And, I mean, Cincinnati do have billionaire owners. Whether they will splash the cash a bit more, we'll have to wait and see, I guess. Yeah. So that is it for the MLS chat. 
In the last part of tonight's show, we're going to be looking at a former MLS player, but we'll, we'll come to that in part five. In the next part, though, Joe got fed up sticking at home. So we're going around the world with Joe Corona for some travels just to bring you the latest news from around Europe and some of the other leaks. And we'll also have Wavelength. And we'll be back with that after this. Hi, I'm Andy O'Brien and you're listening to the AFTN radio show. I've seen your face in every place that I'll be going I read your words like black hungry birds read every sowing Rise and fall, spin and call And my name is Carnival Sad music in the night Sings a scream of light out of chorus And voices you might hear Appear and disappear in the forest Short and tall, throw the ball And my name is Carnival Welcome back to the AFTN Soccer Show on CITR Radio, 101.9 FM. That was the second of tonight's Three of a Kind songs. Another song from the 60s, from 1965, by Jackson C. Frank, from his self-titled debut album and only actual studio album that he released in his career. That was the wonderful song, My Name is Carnival. Have you worked out what the link might be? We had The White Room by Cream as the first song. My Name is Carnival by Jackson C. Frank as the second song. If you've worked out the link, do you know what the third song might be? If you haven't worked out the link, let's see if you can work it out when you hear the final song in tonight's Three of a Kind to kick off part five. But let's keep the musical theme going for now. It's wavelength time, everybody. And I'm going back to Scotland this week. Well, kind of to Scotland. We're continuing our theme of songs about football clubs and this is by a Scottish singer-songwriter. He lives in Sweden now, but it is about a Scottish team. But before I tell you what the team is about, I want to want to pose Zach a little quiz question to see if he knows the answer to this. Do you know what the only football team is that is named in the Bible? Is it a trick question or is it like a city name? Uh, it's not. It's kind of a trick question because obviously they're not named as being a football team. Yeah. I give you a slight clue with it, saying it was a Scottish singer-songwriter and I was going back to Scotland. No, that's not helping. Ah. Queen of the South? Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> and that little bit of factual knowledge, if you can call it that, is actually mentioned in the song. As is the fact that last season... Queen of the South banned seagulls from their stadium at Palmerston because they were making too much of a mess trying to eat all the the discarded food and stuff. Not quite sure how you can ban a seagull, but that is what they did. But this is a song from Neil Grant, and it's just simply called Queen of the South Anthem. (laughs) 
That was Neil Grant there with Queen of the South Anthem. And Neil has written a, a lot of different football songs over the last couple of years. I haven't brought you any before because I was kind of going to do a section just on Scottish songs one month. But I thought I'd bring you that one now. That particular song, he was challenged to write it by a, a Scottish football radio show that we've mentioned before, Off the Ball. And they challenged him in a week to write a song for Queen of the South. So that's what he's done. He's written us songs for a few clubs in in Scotland and around the world. Some are good, some are not. He's written some for MLS teams as well. So you can check him out on YouTube. Just uh, type in Neil Grant football songs and you can check a few of those out. But now it's time to go around the world with Joe Corona. And Joe is heading on his travels down to Asia to start this week. Going to the K-League in Korea. And this was a story which Zach and me talked about 
before we started recording last week's show. And then I didn't have time to, to put it in the show because we'd gone long yet again. And I really did not think it was going to be such a big story. But Soul FC got some artificial supporters in the stand for their match. And it turned out that instead of just being normal mannequins, they were sex dolls. Some of which also contained advertising for uh, some kind of sex doll company or or something like that. I can't remember exactly what it was. So, I mean, I read the story last weekend, had a, a chuckle about it, thought it was quite funny. But boy, the outrage that that has caused. FC Seoul subsequently fined 1 million won by the K-League. That works out at around 81,000 American dollars. And yeah, it's just things are obviously looked differently in certain Asian markets. The club were said to have deeply humiliated their female supporters And the the club have said they did not know that they were sex dolls, which I find a little bit hard to to believe. But the K-League accepted that, but yet gave them a stinging rebuke, saying that they should have known that from, and this is the best bit, from experience. So it's like, they should have had experience of sex dolls, because doesn't everyone have experience of sex dolls? But I, I, I just thought it was a bit of fun. And, I mean, let's be honest, we here in Vancouver... I've taken sex dolls to matches. Back in the, the Swan Guard days, we had some sex dolls in amongst the South Side. And even at BC Place, we had some sex dolls when TFC came to visit. I really should dig those out, those photos of that. And not the sex dolls, they're, they're way past their prime. But yeah, we'll, we'll get those photos up maybe for a, a special throwback Thursday. The good thing about it all, though, was that the sex dolls were wearing masks and were socially distancing, so that they were kept six six feet apart from each other. Probably the best thing if they had been previously used. But that's a mistake I don't think clubs will be making again anywhere in the world. The Bundesliga was back for its second week, and it hasn't looked like there's been too much issues from their return in week one. No more coaches breaking curfew to go and get toothpaste, and no tests that seem to have knocked players out. Although Dynamo Dresden, I think, had another positive test amongst their staff, so that there are some concerns as to whether they can get back to playing in Bundesliga 2. But things seem to have been going well, and of course all eyes in the world are on Germany to see how things have worked out for other leagues to kind of follow suit. The next really big league to come back looks like it's going to be La Liga. They got the go-ahead from the Spanish government that the league can return from the week commencing June 8th, which looks like that's going to mean that games can return from June 12th. Each team has 11 games of the season left. I think they're into week 28 now, so there's 11 games of the season left. So still a long, long way to go. And of course, Spain and Italy were the, the two countries in the European mainland that have been hit the hardest. So for them to get back, it's a great feel-good thing for the country as long as there are no more spikes and there's not a second wave and that all the protocols are finished there. It does seem amazing that they are able to get back with with everything that they've gone through, but we'll, we'll see how that plays out there. Jetting over to the UK now. In Scotland, Celtic have finally been crowned Scottish Premier League champions. I mean, it looked like it was going to happen for a couple of weeks, but it's finally been ratified. All the clubs agreed to it. Nine in a row for Celts. 
Rangers fans, of course, saying that that nine-in-a-row title has to have an asterisk. Steven Gerrard grudgingly accepting that their 13-point gap means that they should have the title. Ten, really, with a game in hand if Rangers had won their game in hand. Although no, no guarantee of that, the way that Rangers had been playing of late. Down in England, though, things are still not settled at all and there's been some interesting twists and turns along the way. In women's soccer, the WSL and the Championship have both suspended operations for this season. It was felt that financially that these clubs, which are operating on such a small budget, small crowds, and they've got a lot of operating expenses with kind of hiring venues. A lot of them don't play in, in their own venue. For example, Chelsea women... They play at AFC Wimbledon's ground. It's been decided that the the league season will just be called as it is. No decisions yet about promotion and relegation. In the English Football League, there's still a little bit of drama going on as to what's going to happen. Nothing decided yet by the League One clubs as to whether they are going to, to continue to play on or vote to suspend the season. Maybe have some playoffs. There's been a lot of talk this past week, though, from clubs saying, why are you having promotion playoffs and not relegation playoffs for teams? It, it doesn't seem fair. And obviously there is no relegation playoffs normally, but these are not normal times. And, I mean, it does seem harsh in this money world and with clubs struggling so much financially. A relegation, for example, from the Championship to League One can cost a club multi-million dollars. I think Barnsley said when they last got relegated in 2017-18, it cost them six million. And if they get relegated this time around, it's going to cost them even more than that. Stevenage as well, if they fall out of the Football League and get relegated into the non-league, it's going to cost them a lot of money with no guarantee as to when they will be able to return. And sadly, we have seen a lot of clubs that fall out of the Football League going bust and having to drop down the the leagues at non-league level. The League 2 clubs had come out and said that they agreed for the season to end, but they wanted no relegation. And the English Football League have said, no, there will be relegations, which means that a club like Barrow can hopefully get their promotion from the National League, as we've talked about in the past. Stevenage, though, have come out and said they don't feel that's fair, that there should be no relegation from the Football League 2 this year. Because there's the whole thing with Bury going out of business, so there, there's less clubs in that. So they feel no relegation, but still promote Barrow into the Football League. They feel that that would be fair, and then have a three-up, three-down system next year. And I've got to say, I do feel that that is fair. It's still a shame for the clubs that could have maybe have got promoted from the National League through the playoffs. But, I mean, you've got to have a solution that no one's going to be happy. But to relegate a team when they could really, with the games left, have survived relegation, it is hard to argue with that. And that is the case that Barnsley are making in the Championship as well. And the other case that Barnsley are arguing is, if they get relegated, what about the whole financial penalty thing that is hanging over the likes of Derby and Sheffield Wednesday? If they get found guilty of not following financial fair play rules, they would have a points deduction, could drop them into the playoff spots depending on how other results went over the course of the season, if they were played out. Barnsley are seven points adrift from safety just now, despite being bottom of the championship. Things are that tight. So, I mean, it is still felt that championship clubs are going to vote that they want to try and play out the end of the season. 
but there has been, again, no decision on that. One thing which was mooted, though, as well, is that if the Football League comes back in Championship, maybe even League One level, the playoffs or whatever, they are considering piping in crowd noises, which they are doing in Korea. They're not doing that in Germany. I've seen little highlights from both the Korean and the German League, and I thought I would hate having the fan noise piped in, but... I would much rather have that than just the silence that that you're hearing in the in the German league. It just when you when you go from watching something like say the Pharaohs League that I've been watching, where you are hearing crowd noise, and then you watch a little bit of say the Berlin derby at halftime, like I did, and there's no crowd noise. It's so noticeable, and I'd, I'd much rather have some kind of atmosphere at the games just to kind of play out in the background, really. And when it comes to the Premier League which I guess is what the majority of people that like English football are are going to be wondering about and when it's going to come back. Sunday evening, the UK government said that they were allowing elite sports to move to stage two of their kind of lockdown easing of restrictions, and that's going to allow them to return to play. Premier League clubs are going to have a vote on Wednesday as to whether they are going to accept the kind of conditions laid down by the Premier League for returning to contact training. They're going to get to see what those rules are just 24 hours though before the vote. The the Premier League have not given them the details of what the protocol and the plan is until now. Watford player, Watford captain Troy Deeney was very outspoken this week about the plans to to get the Premier League back and he's saying that he is not going to be returning to training. He hasn't said he isn't going to play games, but he has said he's not going to go back to group training because he has a five-month-old son that has been suffering from breathing problems since birth and he doesn't want to possibly go get some kind of virus, bring it back and put him at risk. 100% agree with that and it's like back him all the way in that. It's difficult though because then Watford is missing a very, very key player as they battle to to stay into the Premier League as well. They have been testing a lot of the Premier League players that have been back at training, non-contract training in the past week or so. And so far, there's only been eight positive tests and not all of them are players. Some of them are officials. Some haven't been revealed as to who they are. Clubs that have been hit have included Watford and Brighton and Bournemouth. But much like MLS, a big stumbling point in all of this is the quarantine rules. Who is in the bubble? Who is allowed to come and go in the bubble? What will that mean to to things if you break the bubble? And on Thursday this week, another big driving force really in trying to get the Premier League back to, to play in is there's going to be a meeting, I believe, with the TV broadcasters to kind of discuss what kind of payback the Premier League might have to do if the season doesn't complete or if it overruns or if, as the government is mandating, some games have to be on free-to-air, like BBC ITV television. The rumours have been that the broadcasting companies may be due a massive $350 million in repayment, which is going to hit clubs so, so hard. And there's already a lot of concern, I mean, in the lower leagues, but I mean, in the Premier League as well, there's going to be a lot of concern about just the money not being there and what what's going to happen after that. And as we keep saying, football, you feel, is going to be drastically different after this. And maybe the top, top clubs, the elite clubs, those clubs that's always mentioned when you're talking about having a European Super League, they're probably going to be okay. And it's the, the lower clubs in the top leagues that are going to be the ones that suffer. And I, I really kind of fear 
in some ways what football is going to look like after this. I hope it's going to be the chance to kind of reshape football and have it as a more level playing field. Realistically, I don't think that's going to happen. I just think the gulf between the top clubs and the lesser clubs and the even lesser clubs is just going to get wider and it's going to be interesting times ahead, I believe, in the world of football. But of course, there are some other football leagues that are still going at the moment. The Belarus Premier League and the Faroe Islands Premier League. So it's time now to bring you our latest FK Slutsk update. We love our Slutsk, the greatest team in Belarus. We love our Slutsk, FK Slutsk. FK Slutsk were back in action on Saturday after last week's heavy defeat to league leader Bati Borisov. They came away with a one-all draw at home to Rucha Brest. And it was a, a game that I think a draw was really a fair result. Both teams had their chances in the first half. It was quite an end-to-end game. Rucha Brest probably had the, the better of the chances in those first half. Slots came a little bit more into, into the second. But we had to wait until the 81st minute for the deadlock to be broken and a nicely taken goal by Igor Semenov in the 81st minute finishing into the bottom corner and you hoped more than felt that that was going to give FK Slutsk all three points because sadly as we've seen all season long their defence has been a bit shaky especially in the tail end of matches and so it proved once again. Another penalty given up, no doubts about this one this week. It was a clear penalty. Boris Pankratov fouled the attacking Rook Brest player in the box. Referee had no hesitation in pointing to the spot. It was a clear foul. Pankratov had been excellent again, pulling out a couple of really good saves to, to keep Slutsk in the match early on. He wasn't able to keep the penalty out though. Vladislav Vasilyev buried it a minute left in the game making it one all, the points were shared, FK Slutsk falling to fifth, five points off leaders Bati Borisov, but they've got a chance to get some points back this coming weekend, they travel away to third bottom Minsk, 5am kickoff, so I don't think I'll be watching that one live, but you'll get all the latest in next week's AFTN Soccer Show. Mon the Slutsk. And the other team we've fallen in love with, they were in action on Friday night in the Faroe Islands Premier League. Vikingar Gotha went top of the table briefly with a very hard-fought 1-0 win over NSI. The deciding goal came in the 18th minute from Ari Olsen. But NSI, despite going down a man in the 61st minute, they really piled the pressure on late on, had some really close calls and some great chances to, to get out of this one with a point. They didn't know. Three points to Vikingar Gotter. Moves into third in the table by the end of the weekend. Two points behind B36 and HB, who are unbeaten with 100% records from their first three games. Vikingar Gotter, two wins and a draw. And a massive match coming up on Thursday. Vikingar travel to take on HB. It's a 9am kickoff Pacific time. The game will be live on Bet365 if you've got access to that. And hopefully we can find a stream on YouTube to share with you as well. So watch the AFTN Canada Twitter to, to see what we can find for that one. But fantastic stuff from Vikingar. 
Their B team also lead the, the second tier as well after a, an unbeaten start to the season. So it looks a great start to the year for the Viking boys. Let's hope they can keep it going. But that is it for this part of the AFTN Soccer Show. We're going to be back in the final part for a chat about two of the standout players in the Canadian men's and women's national team, Alfonso Davies and Christine Sinclair. And we'll be back with that after this. Hi, I'm Alfonso Davies and you're listening to the AFTN Soccer Show. Welcome back to the final part of tonight's AFTN Soccer Show on CITR Radio, 101.9 FM. And that was also the final song of tonight's Three of a Kind. Three songs linked in some way. Were you able to work out what the link might be? That song was Rock and Roll, Part 2, by Gary Glitter, from his 1972 album Glitter. A glam rock icon back in the day who unfortunately suffered a horrible fall from grace for reasons that I won't go into all the ins and outs of just now. If you don't know what they are, you can Google him and find out, but you really, really don't want to. Unfortunately, though, I mean, he had so much good music in the 70s and it's just it's controversial sometimes to play his music, but I have played it tonight because that was the third of our Three and a Kind song. And it was featured, as were the other two songs, in the wonderful film Joker. Yes, the link for tonight's songs is all three films were from the Joker soundtrack. It was a film that, when it got released in the cinemas in 2019, I hadn't seen it. But on my flight over to Scotland at the start of the year, it was on the flight. So I watched it on that, was immediately blown away on how wonderful the film was. One of the best films I've seen for many a year. And it's just come on to Crave TV. Watched it again on Friday night with my wife. First time that she'd seen it. She didn't think... She enjoyed it, but it's not really her cup of tea. So she didn't enjoy it or enthuse about it as much as I did. But if you haven't seen it yet, highly recommend it. Fantastic film. Those three songs from the soundtrack, all good songs as well. If you got the link, congratulations. Let us know on Twitter at AFTN Canada. We'll be back next week with another three of a kind. I wonder what the link will be next week. So for the final part of tonight's show, we're going to stay close at home with a little bit of chat about two Canadian players. And we're going to kick things off with the, the man of the moment, it would appear if you follow social media over the weekend, a goal and an assist for Bayern Munich at the weekend has seen Canadian and North American soccer media salivating once again over Alfonso Davies. I 
didn't watch the game. I would take it that you you did, Zach. Was it as good a performance that had everyone talking about how he's the best male Canadian player ever? Uh, yeah, it was another quality performance. I think we talked last week about how you know watching their you know I was watching their week before. There seemed to be a little bit of rust, though, hmm. in terms of there was you know three or four plays where I think he you know would have you know like to his decision making or his or his touch or control to have been better. But in this game, there was maybe maybe like one error he made that I think he was like back again. Nothing that led to a goal. Uh, and then yeah, he yeah, he scored a he scored a kind of interesting goal where he was he was cutting in. And I think he made a pass that got intercepted, and the person intercepted his pass took a heavy touch, and he just ran onto that heavy touch and smashed it in with his right foot, which was great. Uh, but his, his his assist was the real quality. Uh, another play down the left side and him um, passing across. And I want to say that goal was Thomas Muller, but now I'm forgetting because there were so many goals. Uh, <laughs> oh, yes, because I, I got my text from you asking me what time it was, and it was 11.15. Um, yeah, yeah. No, that, they scored five, yeah. Fonzie's was the fifth, wasn't it? No, fourth. I actually did see that goal on uh, Twitter. Someone had posted the the footage of it, so I watched it. And yeah, horrible defending, but taken well by Fonzie. Yeah. And what was he playing oh, left back? Was, an goal, I believe. was he playing oh. left back or was he playing left wing? No, no, he was playing left back. Wow, he was far up then for left back. He was like the only guy in the box. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, Byron always plays with very attacking fullbacks, very, like, they want to, like... They've. It's it's hard to fully carry on the reign and regime of you know Frank Ribery and Arian Robin, the way that they. That was like you know the 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 dynamic element of Bayern's attack was always down the wings, even when they had an amazing striker like Robert Lewandowski in the middle, like they do now. Um, but their their wing play has always been huge, and so they've they, they've tried to keep that up by by you know having guys like Kingsley Coleman, who is actually. Reportedly, he's even faster than Fonzie uh, in training. Wow! And I believe in FIFA. Um, and so they have him on one side, kind of a replacement, the right-footed kind of person replacement for um, for Frank Ribery. And then they've had a bit of a rotating uh, different players on the other side: um, Serge Gnabry, Thomas Muller occasionally will play out there. Uh, they brought in this game actually Perisic I think started this game on the left and and Coleman played on the right. Perisic is on loan from Inter Milan for the year and, and probably won't be there more than a year. But no, so yeah, so they've always had great attacking like wide play. And when David Alaba has played left back, his interplay with Frank Ribery was has always been a crucial part of, of Bayern's attack. Uh, their link up has always been a crucial part of Bayern's attack. And uh, yeah, so Fonzie's kind of just carried that on with the lab of tucking inside and yeah his i mean his performance was was amazing it was encouraging again on a you know a sportsnet channel that's fairly accessible to most people and yeah just really awesome to to yeah have people watching him play i know the stadium's empty and that sucks but um yeah just really really encouraging they were playing frankfurt and frankfurt is in a like uh it's frankfurt is a far better squad and a far better club than their form would tell you uh, there was a their fifth straight loss for them in the Bundesliga, uh, which is concerning, especially because they've been leaking, leaking a lot of goals the week before. They lost 4-1 to Moke and Gladbach. Uh, this game 5-2 to Bayern. Um, so Frankfurt's a better team than that. Uh, I, I, I believe they're a better team than that. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, Fonzie and Bayern were dominant on the, on the day. 
Well, before we get to some of the, the media hype that, that came out of that performance, I, I want to chat a little bit about an article that came out today in the province from JJ Adams. And it was just breaking down his, Fonzie's transfer to, to Bayern Munich. Had a chat with Fonzie's agent, Nick. I want to say Husey. I've probably absolutely murdered that. But... Let's call him Nick. Yeah, let's, let's go with Nick. Um, and then there was sort of murmurs this week, and I don't know how strong the murmurs were, kind of linking Fonzie with interest from Real Madrid. And you have to feel it would take a massive bid from Real Madrid to to tempt him away from Bayern, especially with him signing now till 2025. Yeah, I don't think there's going to be a lot of interest uh, on Bayern's end to move him anytime soon, even if they can, you know, uh, make exponential profit on their on their investment. Yeah, I, I don't see I don't see that being the, their plans, especially because Bayern's in a, in a bit of a crucial time right now in terms of their squad building. So they've renewed the contract of Thomas Muller. They've renewed the contract of Manuel Neuer. They've taken Alfonso Davies' contract and renewed it, extended it, and like given him uh, like a proper salary in line with their first team players, mm. right? Because when he came in, he was on like a kind of a new players kind of kind of like more like a prospects kind of salary, let's call it. And so his, his salary is, you know, far ex- increased, you know, quite a bit for him. But one of the pieces that is that is still, there are a couple of pieces that are still players who are, I think, like a year and a month or, you know, like 13, 14 months out from their deal ending. And that is, one is Thiago, which is a significant player for them in midfield. But the other is David Alaba, which is very, very crucial for them. Uh, they can, in my opinion, they cannot afford to lose David Alaba, uh, whether they sell him or he goes somewhere in a year on a free or whatever. They, they, that can't happen um, if they want to continue to be the club that they are, especially in Europe. He's an amazing player. He's a little bit, he's different than Alfonso, but he reminds me of, they're similar to me in that they're the kind of player that you can kind of put them anywhere on the pitch, right? Like, for Byron, he's predominantly left back. He's usually the captain of Austria, and he usually plays either central mid or attacking midfield, right? And right now, where is he playing? He's playing center back. So, like, he can, uh, he's so dynamic, left-footed, just like Alfonso, a little bit smaller, uh, obviously not quite as explosive to pace, but he's not a slow dude either. And so he's someone they need to, to, to bring back to kind of help the club propel and, and uh, kind of move forward. Well, I mean, it's interesting that you you mentioned there about the salaries because that was one of the things which was was mentioned and, and talked about in JJ's article. Now, this is an article from reading it today. I've got to say, it doesn't paint the Whitecaps in a good light. Doesn't paint Carol Robinson in a in a great light. It talks about the fact that the Whitecaps asked Fonzie to waive the ten percent fee on the deal that he would be due as a player. There was lots of interesting stuff in it as well, such as Robbo had wanted to take Fonzie to train in Europe in 2017, but his agent Nick had said no. And then his agent wanted him to go, as we know, in a, a training stint with Man United in 2018. And then Robbo and or the club said no and, and blocked that. So it doesn't seem that there was a great relationship between agent uh, and football club which I know you get at times in this game because the whole agents world is a bit of a murky business at the best of times but this article and we're only obviously getting really 
the the agent side of it. There's a little bit in it from Greg Anderson, but Robbo didn't want to to comment in the article. It does look like the the club thought they they could really control everything, and the agent wouldn't have a say, and that's not what happened. It's interesting to, to read JJ's article, um, and it's probably good and helpful, or hopefully meaningful and helpful for people to understand the process and and to have insight into how things happened when it pertains to Alfonso Davies. So some of the some of the concerns that he raises, uh, uh, that he addresses, I've heard these about this for whatever it has been two years now or whatever. But I've heard people, significant people, give their different takes on this and how things went down and should have went down and got what and where and why and not, not that, whatever. Like, so there's, I don't really want to talk about all that side of things because I think there's only a few people who know the truth about that and we're not those people. And so I think for me, the important thing is, yeah, it doesn't paint the white caps in the greatest light. Uh, I think if you ask the white caps off the record, they would probably blame, blame Robbo. If you ask Robbo off the record, you'd probably blame the white caps, I <laughs> yeah. guess. That's just a guess. I'm not. I'm not saying. I'm not putting words in anyone's mouth. Uh, I, I think it was interesting in the article how Greg Anderson kind of basically said, "Look, this 10% going to the player is, you know, that's MLS is just usually selling. We're not used to this. Therefore, we didn't factor it in in this way or whatever." If that's really what, that's a really poor excuse in my opinion. That shows I don't know if it's incompetence or it shows like if you really don't understand how this works in the rest of the world, then I mean. Why are you like you shouldn't probably be in that position? Yeah. This is this is common. Like people in the football world know this and understand this. And so either he that's maybe a, a statement to maybe hide or, or shield them or point fingers else, elsewhere, but like that's not like, even if that's true, I don't think the way he communicated was probably helpful for him or for the club. It doesn't paint them in, in a good light. It shows them as not understanding how international football transfers actually work. And I think things will probably be better now with Axel Schuster there because he's oh, yeah. like a guy that's got experience of, of worldwide football. So, I mean, but it's, it's concerning that that happened. When I read that, I was like, what the hell? Why Why would you say to the player, with everything that he's been through and everything that he's brought to the club, why would you then ask him to do that? And, oh, yeah. it's, I mean, it's great now then to hear that he's got this pay rise and that his, his family are building a nice big house in Edmonton and that he has been able to take care of them because that's that's all he wanted to do. And when, whenever he spoke to Fonzie, he was so down to earth. I mean, Alan Koch was talking about that in, in the, the recent interview that we did with him about how he's just such a humble guy and he just wants to to provide for his family and, and stuff. So, I mean, I, I when I read that, I was like, that's just... that's just horrible. Yeah, and here's the, this is not an isolated incident, right? Like this is this appears to be another example of how the Whitecaps don't understand how how they end their relationship with a player impacts how they're perceived by other players, by other agents, by other leagues, by people in the football community around the world. This appears to be another kind of kind of stain or another kind of you know check in the in the con box. When you're talking about you know who the Vancouver Whitecaps are and how they run, I would agree with you that the turning of the page of Axel Schuster and Mark Panis are hopefully moving some of those former you know checks in the con category into the pro category for the for the Vancouver Whitecaps. Yeah. This if this is just not a not a great thing. I will say this though. Another thing I think it's really important to talk about is you can 
say like, oh, well, he could have had a trial at Man United or he could have had maybe other opportunities, other places. I know Paris Saint-Germain was a big thing. They came with a late bid, supposedly, or whatever. And Yeah, and Palme was the broker for that, interestingly. Right, exactly. So everyone was trying to get their help out or play a role or whatever. But here's the thing. Had Alfonso Davies gone to Man United or gone to Paris Saint-Germain or gone to Barcelona's second team, I do not think, you know, he would have made the breakthrough yeah. the way he did now. Because, one, I think just Bayern is committed to playing young players, quality young players. Two, Bayern had some injuries that really opened a door for him. And and three, and then he took the opportunities, right? And he's kind of made a, well, yeah. made, a, made a place for himself. And so I, I think if he had gone to any of those places and been loaned out or, like, whatever, like, I think that that was significant. I think, and maybe I'm misreading the article, article, but also it sounded like, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounded like the 10% thing. It sounded like uh, some of that got made up on Bayern's end, right? So yeah, whole, so basically like, the, the agent had said, well, no, you need to come back with more money for this, this, and this to make up for that 10%. Yeah, and Bayern, and Bayern came back with some stuff. Yep, the, they, they said, the yep, details, right? we'll do this, we'll do this, we'll do this. And I, I agree with you. I think... When you look at all the clubs that were interested in him, and it, obviously hindsight's a great thing, but I think we did say this at the time anyway, Bayern just seems the the ideal fit, the way that they've looked after him, both on and off the field by the sounds of it as well. Oh, it, it's allowed him to kind of just continue his development, continue to stay with his feet in the ground. Um, the fact that he's, he's stayed with this agent, he's stayed loyal with this agent, he's known... The, him through his, his son since they were 10 years old I mean that's in itself a great story and it just kind of shows the kind of person that Alfonso is yeah and then like I said now he's been rewarded so like you know no one at Byron was like hey Alfonso you got a contract for four or five more years three or four more years you're stuck on that salary they said no you you are now you, we brought you in on this let's, again let's use the language of a prospect kind of contract no now you are a first team regular we need to we need to augment your contract yes. to reflect your contribution to the team, which is also something the pre-Panis Schuster Whitecaps really, really were really, really poor at. Well, yeah, but I think that's an MLS thing as well because yeah, it, yeah. Cause oh, it's like, oh, you've you've you got your deal, you signed your deal. I don't care if you've scored yeah. a golden boot, winning amount of goals. You're not getting more. So it's great for him. He might have had some negative experience, but I think it's good for him to be at a club where. I think there's going to be uh, – he's experienced a lot of positive things. I think he's been treated probably uh, – he's been treated well. And yeah. so I think that it's helped him, I think, probably adjust to life in a, in a new country with a new language and help adjust to being uh, in, a, in a team in addition to obviously his abilities and his hard work and his performances. And obviously his performances have made people take notice in him that maybe hadn't taken notice in him before. I was watching a, a UK show, uh, it's a, a BT sports show called The Football's Not On, and they were showing some of Fonzie's TikTok stuff, and they were just saying what, what a nice lad he, he seems, and he seems a, a great guy, and, and stuff like that. I, I thought it was, it was kind of damning of MLS, really. I, I read that Fox Sports Bundesliga covers last week when talking about Fonzie had said that he had come to the league as a relative unknown. So it's like MLS, yeah, they're unknown if they come from MLS. Yeah. But 
I mean, he is getting hyped up. Lots of the American journalists are, like, bigging him up. We actually talked about this in last week's show, but I ended up cutting it out for time. I, I was worried that he was getting bigged up a little bit too much. TSN had a poll asking if he was already the best ever Canadian player. And it was kind of almost a 50-50 split of yes and no, with a lot of people coming back going, um, yeah, I remember Christine Sinclair plays football as well. And then they had to redo the poll saying men's footballer. Yeah. So... Yeah. Who? Uh, I I was racking my brains for that as well. That that was something I was going to actually ask you about because I was thinking if you look back over the years, I mean, you've got some players, I mean, I know he didn't play for Canada, but like Owen Hargreaves went and carved out a career at Man United and in Bayern and stuff. He carved out a career where? He carved out a career at Bayern and then spent a few years in Man United. Well, whatever. Um, but I mean, I genuinely would struggle to think of a of a better Canadian player. But then, I'm not from here. Maybe there was some guys from many years ago that we just didn't know about. No, there's been a number of Canadian players who have done, like you know, awesome things. Uh, who have fantastic skill, you know, and stuff like that. Like I think, of, you know, most people have think of like Randy Rosario. Can't like to me, you can't ever say that Randy Rosario is on the same level. Now, obviously, uh, Rosario did things over a longer period of time, and sure, that's a fair perspective. But still, I would—if you're choosing who is the best footballer, I would—I would choose Alfonso Davies. There are great players like Paul Stolteri, won a Bundesliga double mm. with Werder Bremen. So, so happy for him. Uh, he's a great—you uh, know—he's been a great contributor to Canadian football over the years, and continues to do so even now. Um, I think he, you know. Maybe that conversation. There's older players like, um, you know, uh, you know, you talk about the '86 team if you want, or you know, guys from that, or like Dominic Mobilio, or mm. you know, there's lots of people you could, you could talk about. You know, um, you know, Alex Bunbury as a striker. You know, that you know, people like that. But like, just like their ability. And I've talked. And I've talked. To, I've talked to some of the. I've talked to some veteran Canadian, uh, you know, players who say that they use hands down. Yeah. Like it's not even a contest. I, and the, other, the other thing about 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 I want to say about him in terms of his the, the money around him and stuff. The crazy thing is whatever whatever the final amount that Byron ends up paying to MLS for him, uh, like Byron is like laugh, laughing to the bank all the way to the bank. Oh yeah. Yeah, like, something like that. We paid like nothing for this guy, and he is going, he's amazing and going to be amazing for us. And the so Byron, like, if they do ever sell him on, they will make, like, already, I think, valued at like 50 million euros. Yeah, for, 45, I think, was the last that I saw. Sorry? F- 45 million, I think, was the, the last uh, I saw as his value. But, I mean, yeah, I mean, he's doing great. It's, he just has to keep it, keep it going. I mean, that's, that's the thing. And, Folk mentioned Christine Sinclair. I mean, she's a great player. The men and women's game is very, very different animals. 
But, I mean, talking to Christine Sinclair, the NWSL, their teams are also returning to training this week. We spoke about MLS in the first part. NWSL are back. They're also looking to have a tournament planned, this time in Utah. But the buy-in maybe isn't as great right now because there have been some players that don't seem overly keen and I just the same kind of concerns that we talked about with MLS, just around safety and quarantine and testing and being away from families and stuff. But, I mean, the women's game is in such a perilous state that you feel it needs to return to get some money coming through and get some TV revenue or the game, women's game in North America could be in a in a real mess. Yeah, I wonder, like, MLS, you know, MLS is maybe a bit of a different beast, uh... I guess each league is his own is his own animal, right? So it'll be interesting to see, though. I, I wonder if uh, the NWSL can get more exposure in a time like this, where yeah, there's less on and less to watch. And if it could potentially ha- like help them in the in the long run, in terms of like, hey, there was this period of time where there was less sports, less options for people to go out and do, and so more people watched on TV and got engaged and uh, passionate about the league about a local club about a you know, whatever a club in a different city you know because um, you know they don't have one in their state or whatever but um, I mean that's I guess maybe that's trying to look at it you know with two you know, rose tinted glasses or rose city glasses <laughs> that's <laughs> my thing did you see, did you see um, the, the kit unveiled oh that? I love that it's a beautiful kit yeah they're really really nice there's a good little you know, little video clips of all the players receiving them at home opening them and yeah yeah, it only comes in women's fit, apparently. But that's okay, because with the amount of chocolate I've eaten during the lockdown, my boobs are getting quite big anyway, so it should be quite good. <laughs> my my curves are made for this strip now. Oh, man. But, I mean, talking of Christine Sinclair, I jumped on a conference call with her about two weeks ago now, and there was a lot of things talking about getting back to training and stuff, but I want to bring you a little bit from the call now, just around the, the breaking of the record that, that she did recently and just really how grateful she is that she managed to break it before this lockdown because who knows when international football is going to get back up and running again and you don't want that hanging over you where you're just a little bit away from setting the all-time record. So let's just hear from Christine Sinclair and some stuff around that. Earlier this year, year you hit a uh, personal milestone that was very significant in the soccer world. And I'm wondering, since you've had time to be at home um, and being able to reflect on that achievement, um, what your thoughts are on that? You know, it's, I'm not going to lie. It's not something I spent too much time thinking about. Uh, when people bring it up, uh, it's like, oh, yeah, even today, like Nadine, our goalkeeper coach, she was like, you broke the record. And I was like, what record? Like, I didn't even, it didn't even dawn on me what she was asking or telling me because it, it seems like a different world ago that it happened. But no, it's definitely something I'm, I'm proud of. It's an achievement. I think when I'm done playing that I'll look back and that's, that's a pretty cool one to have. Yeah. It just, yeah. I think it just goes to show I've had a, I've been very fortunate to have a, such a long career and, such a successful career with the national team. Um, yeah, I'm pretty proud of it, but I think it was something when I'm done playing that I'll look back on more. 
Christian, I know you said you haven't thought too much about breaking the record, but are you grateful that you managed to break it before all this so that it's not just weighing on you and you're just a couple of goals away and having to wait who knows how long? Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, I mean, that record had been weighing on me for probably about a year and a half um, as like the goals were ticking away and you start to realize like, you know, if I stay healthy, it's just, it's, it's going to happen. It's just a matter of when, um, but it was a lot, it was stressful. And especially with the national team, like you play one game and then you don't have another game for four months or three months or whatever the case may be. And so you, you have to sit with that for those like three months, which is a lot. Um, I was grateful to get it out of the way. And I mean that in the best possible way, like in the first game of our Olympic qualifying tournament, just because I didn't want it to be a, a stress for the team. I wanted our team to be able to focus on qualifying, not me getting a few goals. Um, and then obviously we had no idea this was going to happen, this pandemic. Uh, so yes, I'm very grateful that it is out of the way before this all started because yeah, who knows when we'll play again. I read somewhere where you had your eye on that record when you were 16. And I was just curious um, how much you enjoy the game now compared to when you first started playing and you came up. Yeah, so I, re I remember scoring my first goal for the national team. And I looked at what Mia had at that time. There's like 150-something goals. Um, and like two, th two thoughts crossed my mind, like I'm going to beat Mia uh, was one. And then the next was like, oh, my God, that's a lot of goals. Like that's a lot of games and years on the national team. But why not? Let's go for it. Now compared to then, yeah, it's a little different. I still have that like love and passion for the sport, like this like desire to win and this desire to improve and help my team win, whether it's with the Thorns, whether it's with the national team. But I think now it's more about what kind of impact I can have like on the next generation. Um, whether it's like five and six year olds that are dreaming and aspiring of one day playing for Canada or playing for the Thorns or just dreaming their crazy wild dreams, hopefully to be an inspiration for them. And yeah, because when I was 16, first playing for the national team, there's I was completely overwhelmed and nervous and just trying to survive. Um, yeah, now it's probably a little bit more meaningful every time I play for the for my country. I'm wondering with the uh, the extra year, maybe before the Olympics next year, if they happen, how do you think that extra year will allow Canada to prepare with you know such a young squad and uh, Kenneth Hunter Muller and what the team wants to implement and already qualifying as well? Yeah, I think. I think with Canada, it'll be the same as every national team. They'll look to use this year to like fill gaps um, that have been identified within the team. And I think for Canada, it's about that final third. Um, as a team, we don't create enough chances. Um, so I think that's sort of been our gap that we've realized over the past couple of years. And I'm sure that will be something that will be addressed. So that was Christine Sinclair there, and 
Yeah, I mean, Zach, it's great that she broke it before this because, as I said at the intro there, you don't want that hanging around you, just waiting to to try and, and beat that whenever football comes back. Yeah, I mean, you know, in the preceding months, we talked a lot about how, you know, it would be ideal for her to, to break the record at a certain, you know, at a, at a big tournament or in a significant yeah. match or at home or something. But definitely now you look at it and you're like, you're just thankful that it's done with so she doesn't. It's not like, yeah, if, if this, there's any kind of, if, if, if the long-term effects of this, you know, limit her career or, you know, she's another year older and whatever, she doesn't have to worry about that. If she, if she wanted to walk away now, uh, I, I don't see her walking away before the Japanese Olympics, but if she did want to walk away now, you know, she could, you know, this is one one of the things that she wanted, I think, to accomplish yeah. that she could, you know, hold her head up, head up high and, and be really proud of. Well, I mean, we still don't even know if the Olympics will even go ahead. And it's like, you don't know when, like, international football will continue, really, like, on a, on a world scale. I mean, CONCACAF, you might get a little bit of movement and games, but like global travel still seems uh, a long way away for, for sports people. Mm. But anyway, that is it for this week's show. Thank you all for listening as always. Just before we go, just let everyone know where they can find you online, Zach. For me, it's at Zachary I'm Michael McCall. You can find me on Twitter at AFTN Canada, on Instagram at AFTN Soccer, and on YouTube at AFTN Canada. Also, keep an eye on our Twitter feed because I am going to be launching a new podcast soon. It's an AFTN Scotland podcast. After all this time, I'm finally going to get right to doing one about East Fife with my good friend Lee Gillis over in Fife. So you might not have any interest, but, but keep keep your eyes open for when that comes out anyway. But that is it for tonight's show. We'll be back next week. Until then, thanks for listening. Take care. Stay home. Stay safe, stay healthy, and wash those hands. Bye, everyone. Going to your first match is an experience you never forget. The atmosphere of what's going on around the pitch looks beautiful, and you always look and go, wow, I'd love to play here one day. If you get the bug, it's going to stay with you for life. E.F.